You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. It's time for straight talk about diversity, frank questions, honest answers, and real insights. It's Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union, with your hosts, Sadika Bodka of Nikea Diversity Consulting and Anthony Arrington of Top Rank Professional and Executive Search Firm. Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union, is a Corridor Business Journal podcast. Today's episode was recorded live at the Diversity 5.0 Virtual Conference with guests Dr. Nika White and Tavis Smiley. We'll be right back. Green State Credit Union is proud to sponsor Diversity Straight Up. Established in 1938, Green State is Iowa's largest financial cooperative serving nearly 250,000 members of all walks of life. Green State's products include checking accounts, loans, investments, insurance, commercial services, mortgages, and credit cards. Profits are returned to members in the form of better rates on deposits and loans. We encourage you to learn more at greenstate.org. Green State is federally insured by the NCUA and is an equal housing opportunity lender. Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union, is also sponsored by Alliant Energy. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Corridor Business Journal's Diversity Straight Up podcast presented by Green State Credit Union. This is a very exciting uh, one for me as it was live virtually for the Society for Diversity's Virtual Diversity Conference 5.0. We had some great guests, such insightful reflections. Don't you we, think so, Anthony? We did. We did. We had some wonderful guests of Dr. Nika White, uh, who's a well-known diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, expert, uh, nationally known. It was a wonderful conversation with her, as well as Tavis Smiley, uh, who's been a media uh, figure for a better part of 20, 30 years. Um, and we had some great conversation with uh, Tavis Smiley as well. So great show, and we hope that you really enjoy it. Enjoy the show and share your feedback, comments at infodiversitystraightup.com. Anthony, there's been something on my mind. There's something on my mind. I'm thinking about what is happening globally with uh, women's rights. And i seeing and hearing, you know I'm a global citizen, and uh, what is happening in Afghanistan. And recently you've seen a lot of the women that are being brave and courageous, and they're doing demonstrations. Yeah. They are trying to stand up for their fundamental human rights, yeah. as well as for the girls that are coming after them. And you see about they're fighting for inclusion, for representation, to be able to go to work, go to school. And my heart breaks when I see how their rights are being impacted and they want to live a life that's free of violence. Yeah. Then I circle back and I think about um, what is unfolding here in the United States and Texas with um, their new legislation, Senate Bill 8, and which bans abortions after six weeks and it really leaves enforcement up to private citizens. Yeah. Anywhere, whoever it is, it could be any private citizen, can go after a Texan. Yeah. And I, I, I think about it because you can either, you know, you perform the abortion or anyone that aids in the abortion. And not only if they successfully, you know, win that case, not only yeah. will their, you know, 
uh, their uh, legal services be covered, yeah. they'll also get a payment of $10,000. I, I say this when I'm thinking about the thought of women in Afghanistan or in Texas that your rights are being impacted. Obviously, there's a lot of layers when you're thinking about these situations, but some of the common themes that I'm seeing is around religion, government mandate to strangers who are private citizens who are able to act and alter yeah. the life of an individual, of a woman. Yeah. And, and for yeah. me, you know, when we're thinking about being straight up and being inclusive and creating communities where everyone can bring their whole full self. Right. There's just a lot of layers that it's not it's, just their issue. It's our issue. It's, it's a global issue that it we is. really, really need to tackle. So that's been on my mind yeah. when we're thinking about uh, diversity. Um, no, I don't thanks. know. What are your thoughts, Anthony? You know, uh, as a, uh, this is diversity straight up. This is how, this is our conversation. And listen, as a, as a, as a, as a man that's grown up with a single mother, uh, as a girl dad with, with two daughters um, and with a whole host of aunties and uncles and grandmas that have taken care of me in my life, my respect um, for women um, is through the roof. And so being straight up is disturbing to me. Um, and as a practitioner, it's, it's, it's one of those difficult things we have to deal with every day in our space as, as diversity practitioners and how to manage the emotion of how we feel about some of these things. And that's a, I understand where you're coming from. I'm not a woman, but as a, as a, as a girl dad and as a man who's been raised by women most of my life, most of the women in my career have been, or most of the bosses in my career have been women, that's difficult for me. That's very difficult for me. And so I respect that. I respect that. So yeah, we could, we could go all day, but we, we got Nika White on. We've got Nika White today, so let's, let's get into it. Nika, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, feel free to... <laughs> Well, first and foremost, I want to thank each of you. So thank you, Sarifa. Thank you, Anthony. And thank you, Jess, for having me. I'm super excited to join this conversation. And I am right there with you. I can echo the sentiments that both of you have shared. I, I stand in solidarity with all of the individuals who are fighting to preserve the rights for um, women to make decisions about their, their reproduction. And I, and I really am concerned that um, for those who aren't taking a stake and, and a position and really speaking out, um, I, I, I'm curious. I, I am really trying to practice authentic curiosity to understand yeah. um, why, why, yeah. why. I think that um, dialogue is so important right now. So I, one, one of the things I appreciate about this conversation, this platform, is that you're willing to go there. We have to go there. We have to have the hard conversations. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and it's, it's very disturbing. So I, yeah. it's, it's obviously top of mind for me as well. So I'm glad you Thank let you. in with that. Thank you for sharing that. Well, let's tell everybody a little bit about your background because you are, you are qu quite a woman. Uh, Dr. Nico White is a national authority and fearless advocate for diversity and inclusion. As an award-winning management and leadership consultant, keynote speaker, published author, and executive practitioner for DEI efforts across business, government, nonprofit, and education, Dr. White helps organizations break barriers and integrate diversity into their business frameworks. You know, her work has led to being designated by Forbes as a top 10 DNI trailblazer. Dr. White is the author of two books, as we mentioned earlier, The Intentional Inclusionist, uh, as well as The Next Level Inclusionist, Transforming Your Work and Yourself for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusive Success. So, and she has quite a cool vodcast, if you all want to check that out on LinkedIn. It's really cool. So, welcome, Dr. White. Welcome. We appreciate you today. Thank you. We've got a jam-packed show, so we're going to get straight right into it. 
So Nika, we're hearing people say they're experiencing diversity fatigue. People are exhausted and or cynical when it comes to equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement efforts, which I'm just gonna coin it EDI&E, so it's shorter. Or you know, whether it's diversity training or whether it's talking about race relations or they're seeing leaders be performative when it comes to their EDI&E efforts. Companies and communities, we know, they get very laser focused around their EDI&E initiatives, especially when there's an incident tragedy that happens, as we saw last year and everything. Then the fatigue seeps in. In working with your clients, can you share in your experience how you have been able to help them navigate how to overcome diversity fatigue and or how they can avoid diversity fatigue? It's a great question, Sarika, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to weigh in on this. Yeah, fatigue in this space and this discipline is real. Um, I say that um, considering many different um, things that are come to mind for me, but one of which is that many people who are actually practitioners in this space, they are um, they care about this work because they are directly impacted by the work because a lot of individuals who do this work are part of those marginalized targeted groups and they also are looking for support. And so it really is easy to become fatigued. I think that we have to remind ourselves of the why and do so quite often. If we can remind ourselves of the why, I think that it helps to position us to not allow the normal frustrations of the day in and day out planning and trying to execute towards some type of end goal to, to keep keep us from staying to course. And so let, let's remember the why. We also have to appreciate the fact that we're after progress, not perfection. And I think that's really important too, because you know it may not be necessarily our, our role to help people reach a very precise end goal. It may be to plant that seed, which is why strategic partners are always very, very helpful as well. We all need to be working together. Um, I think that we have to also make sure that we are um, controlling the narrative. Right now, so many people will treat um, diversity, equity, and inclusion work as obligation. And when it's seen as an obligation, there's a lot of burden that people tend to carry with that. But when you see it as an opportunity, there's excitement because there's a desire and a drive to be motivated to reach the end goals. And so shifting the narrative, owning that narrative, and then last but not least, fatigue is real. So we have to be really diligent about our self-care. Whatever that looks like for each of us who are practitioners in this space, whether it means we need to take a step back and just um, reflect and um, remember some of the milestones that we've been able to achieve to help refuel us to be recharged for the next journey ahead, whatever it is, put people into your tribe and into your corner that can help support you and be that thought partner. Um, yeah. yeah, all all of the above, but we need to make sure we're taking care of self. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You know, we, we talk about the difficulties and the, and the challenges and the fatigue and the stress, you know, and, you know, for, for you, Dr. White, as a, as a woman um, and as a black woman in particular, um, you've obviously experienced a lot of hurdles and a lot of challenges, um, you know, trying to validate your worth. I remember speaking with you a couple of years ago and you talked about being the first in the room and what that's like. Can you can you talk to our listeners about some of those hurdles you challenges and uh, some of those hurdles and how you've overcome those to, to get to the place where you are today? Yeah, so the hurdles are real. And um, I think first and foremost, we have to 
recognize the hurdles. Um, and I say that because again, this the complexity of this work and even just navigating as, um, as, a, as a black woman in a society that's very much dominated by whiteness, it, it can get really hard. It can get, um, you know, tough. And sometimes we may feel like we, we, we don't have a fight in us that day. But I think we have to, again, just realize what our why is. For me, my motivation is the, the generation to come after me. Um, you mentioned that you are uh, a, a, a girl dad. Um, and I, I also have a daughter who's in college right now. And so I see that she is um, you know, watching me and, and I, I want to make sure that I am, I'm modeling and I am, I'm helping her to realize that just because it gets tough does not mean that we don't have to find some, some greater, um, ways of, of creativity to try to problem solve, um, and be prepared for those hurdles. I think that if we know what to expect, sometimes it gives us greater propensity to plan for them so that they don't, again, frustrate us to the point where we're ready to um, um, to feel defeated before we even start. Yeah. And, and having, again, those supporters in your corner to help you as well. Well, I'm gonna pivot a little bit here. We know that when it comes to equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement, the journey starts with us. We share this with leaders all the time, especially senior leaders, that that internal self-reflection and reflection is really needed to be able to drive that cultural transformation. With that said, we're also seeing an increase in uh, executive coaching around DEI. And I want, I know this is a service that you provide, uh, Nika, can you um, share with us um, any uh, case studies that you have seen how the DEI executive coaching has really helped the leaders? More importantly, how then collectively it's been able to help drive cultural transformation. And we're also seeing certification around, um, of course, around certified diversity executives like we all have, but also for coaching, you're seeing a DEI coaching certification. Yeah, it's such an important question. What I have um, come to understand is that people are approaching this conversation at different places within their learning journey. So there are a myriad of mental models that people are carrying and, and we have to recognize that. Um, and so what I find to be really effective is when you can do one-to-one -one executive coaching or even small group coaching, it creates this, this layer of protection, if you will, that I think allows people to feel a bit more um, willing to, to ask the hard questions, you know, to make sure that they are positioning themselves to be prepared for the hard questions that could come to them. And for leaders, I think that we have to realize we don't know what we don't know. You know, the fact of the matter is that a lot of our organizations and, and, and corporations these days are still large in part ran by white men. And where you sit in an organization determines what you see and what you see becomes your lens. And your lens is where you then find the ability to make decisions, to interact with others. And if you aren't grounded in knowledge that allows you to also have a perspective of those that that are not in your shoes, then it's not going to allow you to be the most effective leader. And so I think that a lot of, of individuals have come to that conclusion and they want to be able to get better at having the conversations, at supporting the ERGs and BRGs within their organization. Just because we are a leader by positionality does not mean that we know how to navigate this work in this space. And I think that's what that coaching does. It provides more of a customized plan where we're meeting people where they are and we're helping them to navigate the complexity of, of so many different scenarios that they could be faced with in the workplace. 
You know, it's interesting. As I, I was just thinking about this, um, as you were saying that, I was thinking about education. And, you know, people that want to be better at math, they get tutors. Um, they want to be better at science, they get tutors. And, and, and what we're tutoring on is the importance of equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement. As a, as a coach, that's I'm going to have to remember that. I just thought about that. <laughs> yes, but what we're yeah. attempting to get people to do is to realize the, the personal responsibility and accountability yeah. of building their inclusion and equity muscle. Yes. The yes. great thing about this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion is that in order to grow in your inclusion-mindedness, um, it does have a growth capability to it, but it, it can happen. And I say that really to amplify, I think there are way too many individuals who at their core, if you were to engage them, they can talk about the value of DEI and certainly can articulate that it's important, right? But what I find to be true is that way too many people are passive about it and that they see it as the responsibility of someone else. Those mm -hmm. who carry the title of chief diversity officer, manager, director, or even the HR professionals. And I really want to try to shift that paradigm to where people see um, inclusion-mindedness as a leadership function, leadership yes. not by positionality, but by influence. And we can lead and influence from any place in the organization. So we yeah. all need to now own that responsibility. Yes, yes, yes. That is awesome. Well, you know, I really think um, that uh, when you're looking at creating that alignment, that executive alignment at the top. Yeah. Because as we know, there's people that have interest, people have power and, uh, you know, platform and privilege to be able to drive it. We need everyone to be able to take that accountability. And it's really going to be here that we can move the needle and meet those people that have that passion. And it's going to take all to be able to do it. And I think that sometimes the coaching has gotten a negative rap thinking something's wrong with me. And in reality, as leaders, we have that growth mindset. Right. We wanna to continue to learn and we only know what we know. So I think of that that's the other perspective shift is what does coaching mean? Did I do something wrong? No, as leaders, we the executive coaching is a trusted advisor partner to help you, not tell you, but help you explore so yes. that you can make an informed decision in terms of your actions and behaviors to really drive it yeah. further. We're coached in so many other things. We, we can be coached as leaders as well, you know, so. You yeah. know, I think sometimes we see coaching as I'm being penalized too, right. you know, because that's how some organizations will leverage it. It's like, okay, right. so you've missed the mark here. There've been these grievances about you and your leadership style, your management style. We're going to send you to be coached, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and if it's around DEI, then people presume, okay, so now I'm being punished. And I think yeah. that's part of the narrative we really need to try to shift. Yeah. We need to have a coach around as you mentioned, Anthony and Sarika, around so many areas of our lives. And so why yeah. are we seeing it as, as a, a, a way of being penalized when it's associated in the context of DEI, building our inclusion muscle? Alliant Energy is a place where I can create the future, where my skills, creativity, and new ideas make a better tomorrow. I help deliver the energy powering moments that matter to you. It's where we care about the environment and our neighbors, a place where my talents and skills grow. My job isn't a job, it's my passion, my place, my purpose, because I am energy. See how you can put your energy to work at AlliantEnergy.com careers. But we're gonna pivot, um, and, and our great moderator, Jess, who's been keeping an eye on, on the board, is gonna uh, read a few questions from our, our listeners and uh, questions for you, Nika, that you were able to answer. 
Um, I have one question for you right now. If you have some more, um, please throw them in the Q&A section. Um, so first question I have for you, um, Dr. White, is how do you recommend moving your company leadership from the idea of ED EDIE away from being an obligation and instead a normal way of conducting business? Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, one of the things that I always like to um, engage in dialogue around with, with client partners when they are vetting us as a potential vendor and, and we are you know, likewise vetting them as a potential partner, I think it needs to go both ways, yeah. is asking really thoughtful questions. I always like to understand what was the impetus that led you to this call today? Or if you have already started your journey and you're at a certain place within your continuum, what led you originally? And if they are able to articulate the why, you know, the business case, then I feel like that provides me with really good intel to be able to engage them further to understand what the organizational readiness, what is the individual leadership readiness around really um, committing to this work. And so if the why is more for compliance reasons, then I, I ask some deeper questions. Are we doing this because you're checking a box or, you know, and they're different motivators. And I realize that people start at different places, but what I wanna see is not so much of arriving at a certain destination because we all know there is no destination. I wanna see the commitment to the process. That's yes. so important for me. And, and, and I think that's the difference. If we see it as an obligation where it's like a compliance and we have to do it, then you're not really going to be fully committed to it. And what that translates into, you're not going to be fully committed to um, allocating the right resources, infrastructure, human capital, financial capital, which means you're not going to have a chance to build a solid foundation upon which this work can be sustained. So I think that's that's critically important. And the other thing is I talk a lot about activity versus impact. And I know that's something that is really a big conversation in this space. Um, you, you know, activity has a start and an end date. And, and a end date. Impact is where you have to look at systems, policies, procedures, culture. That's where you're going to be able to move the needle. And so as you talk and engage with people, you can tell if their mindsets are more so around, I'm looking for activity so I can feel good about it versus I'm really looking for change, DEI transformation. Yeah. I think that's very important. Always asking by doing this EDI&E initiative, what was the difference made? What was the change? What right. was the transformation? Then you're going from activities to outcomes. And we know that this is very, this is an investment of time, energy, resources, funding, etc. What's the ROI? We have to really look at the outcomes. What was the difference that was made? So thank you, Nico. Appreciate it. Okay. I think we, got, we got about 10 minutes left in the show. I think we got time for maybe one more couple questions. I think, I think we have time for one more yeah, question. Let's get another, Jess. another one, Jess. Yeah, um, another one um, from our audience. Looking at a perspective of a BIPOC individual, how do you recommend employees find their strength, empowerment um, when suffering from minority stress? Mm. This great is such question. a good one. It's a great yeah. question. Um, I'm going to say that reflection is, is, is so critically important. We have to spend time quietening our egos and really just listening to what our bodies are telling us, to what our heart is telling us, to what our mind is telling us. Our body speaks to us in many ways. And we know our threshold of emotional capital that we can give to certain situations. And when we reach that point, we have to be true to ourselves to make sure that we are making the call that allows us to be okay. 
And so I think it's about, again, just having those reflection time to assess, you know, how am I feeling in this moment? What am I noticing about the times that I'm triggered? And then how can I then take some level of responsibility for preventing that um, to, to really um, negatively impacting me? And sometimes that means leaving certain environments, leaving certain jobs and roles, um, excluding certain people from our inner circle so that we don't have that negative energy. It also means to, um, to maybe even, you know, see a therapist that can help us to kind of walk through as we're talking about our challenges. And so, you know, again, I think I, the, the, the main answer there is be reflective and let that quiet time allow us to be informed about what are some other steps that we need to be taking um, to help us be whole. Wonderful questions. And I know, Jess, um, if you can help capture any questions that we have right now, we will, of course, be able to ask them in our future episodes of Diversity Straight Up podcast. So just like our listeners, continue to submit questions, comments, and suggestions to info at diversitystraightup.com. And uh, thank you all for asking uh, Nika some great, great, insightful questions. All right, we're going on to our uh, Final piece for Nika here. It's a little fun one. I don't know how you are with playing ball, but I think uh, Anthony's going to do this one with yes, you. Yes, So we, we love we love fun stuff. So this is what we call our diversity thumb ball. Great ice icebreaker. It, it's got a, a bunch of questions on it around equity and diversity. So Sarah and I like to bang each other in the head with this ball. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, if you were here with us, we would toss it to you in the studio and you would catch it. And so what you do is you catch the ball and wherever the thumb lands, you ask that question and you answer that question authentically. Oh, well, so you know what? How about you throw that to me? Sarah? I'm going to be a pretend Nika here. I'm going to throw it to Anthony. Yes. I will never be able to pull it off as well as you. But... <laughs> All right. So your question, Nika, is how do gender norms impact people's opportunities? Ah. Uh... It's a great one. So, yeah. Yeah, it is a great one. We live in a society that where we are so conditioned to put people in boxes. And um, I think that we need to become much more open-minded. We need to realize that um, that our world is changing, that there's so much difference, and we need to build up our cultural competencies so that we are well-informed. And I think that that in and of itself is what helps us to break out of this mold of where we are just assuming what the norm is or being conditioned by what we feel like the norm should be. And so it definitely impacts how in which people have opportunities because we're seeing time and time again that, you know, sexism is real. We're seeing time and time again that there's certain opportunities that people are associated with based upon their gender versus, you know, really looking at someone's talent and skills and experience and qualifications. And so there's definitely a correlation there. And it, it all is steeped in, in bias and it's harmful. And um, we need to learn how to dismantle that, learn how to recognize it and be willing to speak up, be willing to call those behaviors in when we see that bias is creating harm and preventing people from having certain opportunities. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. All right. I think that's the first time we've had that prompt question. Yeah, we've landed. had this so I, I did a time. great job of throwing a good one for you, Nika. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're about ready to wrap up with you here, but uh, before we do, we do want to ask you, is there anything that we have not had the chance to kind of touch base that you would like to share with um, the audience right now? 
Yeah, there's so much that um, I'm having a lot of energy around these days because there's so much occurring. Um, you know, one of the, the messages around uh, my platform is, is really just emphasizing the importance of intentionality. We cannot be passive about this work of inclusion. We have to be intentional. And, you know, that has a certain look about it. It is calculated. It is calibrated. It requires foresight and being action-oriented and believing in the process and the journey that there is a reward on the other end. And so for those of you who maybe are trying to find what are some ways in which I can influence this work and, and have impact, the first thing that I would say is just begin to be intentional. Just get intentional about your, your desire to want to see change occur. And I think that in and of itself is going to automatically put us in the driver's seat of being able to realize some level of, of impact by our actions. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nika, for your for your time and, and for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Nika. Appreciated your insights and reflections. And um, we're going to go ahead and transition to Tavis. Uh, do you want to read the bio, sure, Anthony? Sure, sure. So Tavis is a host of Tavis Smiley on, on KBLA Talk Radio. Uh, it's a flagship radio station of Smiley Audio Media. Uh, Smiley's a best-selling author, he's an advocate, he's a philanthropist, and he's known and respected for his unapologetic progressivism. Uh, he is a recipient of nearly 20 honorary doctorates, doctorate degrees, and he's actually been honored with a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and uh, recognized by Time Magazine as one of the world's 100 most influential people. And I must say, I've been uh, watching Tavis since I was a college student, so we're, we're excited to, to have him on, on today. <laughs> How are you, Tavis? I'm doing the best I can with what I have right where I am. Thank you for the kind introduction. You got it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Yes, uh, Tavis, thank you so much for joining us. And um, we have to say that uh, since we announced that you are going to be a guest executive on our Diversity Straight Up podcast, uh, we, of course, received um, some inquiries uh, about your PBS situation. Uh, you know, we call this Diversity Straight Up because we're always about being real and um, when we engage with our guests, um, we always get that and we know that you're a straight up uh, individual. So we wanted to give you an opportunity uh, to share with our listeners, uh, where are you with the PBS situation and what can you share with other executives and leaders um, to help them uh, maybe navigate and or avoid a situation like you experienced? No, I, I, I welcome the question, um, and I, I was laughing to myself when you said you want to give me the opportunity, and I was laughing. Like, I don't need any more opportunity to talk <laughs> about this, but but I'm happy to but I'm happy to address the question. The, the short answer is that the uh, I filed a lawsuit against PBS, and that case is on appeal, and the appeal process you know takes some time, and particularly in this pandemic, the courts have been slowed and uh, for a long time, in fact, closed down. So the appeal process takes a while. Uh, but for the balance of my career, I've always said that my role is to seek the truth, to speak the truth, and to stand on the truth. And I'm just not, I'm just the wrong person. I'm not going to let people lie on me uh, or fabricate the truth. And sometimes, as I said to someone the other day, sometimes you have to look beyond the purported facts to get to the truth. And whenever there's a movement, whenever there's a movement like Me Too or any other movement, and history is replete with these examples, whenever there's a movement... Um, there's always, as I hate this military term, but as we commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11, uh, this term has come back up again. There's always collateral damage. There are always people who end up being exploited and bastardized and demonized in the process. And the short answer is, you know, I, I, not to go through all this again, the short answer is that in this Me Too era, 
as the first and only African-American in the history of PBS to have his own show, I was targeted. Uh, and I said from the very beginning when these allegations were made, I have never harassed anyone in my life. Never. Uh, and so what PBS did in a very difficult contractual negotiation period was to use this Me Too moment and to weaponize it against me. And they dug back 30, 40 years into my life trying to find anything they could find that they could use to get out of this contract um, that uh, obviously is pretty significant. There's a seven-figure bonus that comes with the signing of my contract. And after they fired Charlie Rose, somebody got the bright idea, well, if we can get Tabis up on some charges, we can get out of this contract after 15 years of being the only, the first and only African-American to host his own show on PBS. Same thing I'd done for NPR, first and only African-American to do it. Uh, and so I found myself in this situation where, you know, I was being asked questions and people were digging into my past. I'm getting calls from high school friends and others where PBS has hired not one, not two, but three different firms to dig into my past. And long story short, what they came up with was a couple of women who I had dated 20 plus years ago, long before I ever started on PBS. And both of those relationships were consensual. And so what I said on day one when this story hit the news was, if this is about dating somebody I worked with consensually 20 plus years ago, then I'm guilty. But if this is about trying to use this moment to get rid of me as an African-American on public television, I'm not going to stand for that. And I'm not going to people lie on me. And again, long story short, as the process went forward, PBS communicated with these two women and they were told that they redated consensually. There was no issue about that. Uh, but in a Me Too moment, this, this, this incident was weaponized and that's precisely what happened. Now, to your question about what, what, what advice I would give, well, in retrospect, you know, if I were a young kid again, I would tell myself, don't date somebody you work with. But it's hard to to say that to people when we live in an environment and work in a country now where we're all spending all of our time at work I and mean, we're home now because of the pandemic. But if I had known 20 plus years ago that dating somebody I work with, you meet people at work, you go out for drinks, you go out for dinner, you, you, you may have a date. If I had known that that was going to up in my career the way it did uh, temporarily, then I would have not done that. But nobody had right. that kind of foresight years ago to know that sure. going on a date with somebody you work with is going to cause this kind of damage. So that's my yeah. advice. Yeah. You know, try, try to be circumspect about your decisions. Yep, appreciate it. Thank you, thank you. We wanted to give you some some time. I appreciate that. And you know, uh, yeah, Tavis, you know, you've uh, you know, every challenge we we all every challenge we go through, you know, it seems to take us to another level. And you left BT, mm -hmm. and then you, you moved to PBS, you know, and you were quiet for a few years, and now you've you're you're you're, you're uh, launching a, a, a your a, the first black on radio show, a talk show. And so, um, what were you doing before you launched? the talk show and, and your time and, and uh, in LA and how, how did you do it? Can, can you talk us to kind of where, you, where you're at today? We've got to your great, your, your, your radio show. No, it's a great, it's a great question. I thank you. Um, so what I was doing for the last three and a half years was again, trying to navigate this post PBS drama and in the midst of a lawsuit against the network and all of that. So I, I, the last three and a half years were, you know, very difficult years of just trying to navigate and a lot of, a lot of downtime, a lot of time in, spent in reflection and you're thinking about decisions made and what I might have done differently and what I've learned from this. So you spend time in reflection. Um, you spend time being Socratic, if I can put it that way. But at some point, you realize that the gift that God has given you has not disappeared. It has not dissipated. And at some point, you realize you got to get back to work. And so after spending all the time I spent on the trial and the case and, you know, trying to defend my good name, it became clear I had to get back to work. 
what also became clear to me uh, in this season of racial reckoning is that as I watched uh, from my home here in Los Angeles, the protest in the streets and beyond, it became clear to me that when the protesters left the streets and the cameras were turned off and the microphones were muted, that we really don't own our own platforms to address issues that matter to us. Everybody talks about diversity and inclusion, and oftentimes those are just buzzwords. Uh, but in reality, we don't have enough African-American-owned media. And it was clear to me that one of the ways that we can advance our cause, one of the ways that we can advance the issues and raise the issues, frankly, that matter to us is to have more African-American-owned media. In the city of L.A., for example, which is the radio capital of the world, there are almost a couple hundred radio stations here. And for years, for decades, the only Black-owned radio station in this city is a station called KJLH, owned by the great entertainer, my friend mm -hmm. Stevie Wonder. But there has never in the history of L.A., in the history of California, and frankly, west of the Mississippi, there's never been a black owned and black operated talk radio station for us, by us and all about us. We get a chance to express ourselves. The problem with talk radio in this city and across the country is that talk radio is I describe it this way all day, all night, all white. So how then? Do we have our voices heard? How do we have a platform to express the issues that matter to us, our aspirations, our fears, our frustrations, our dreams and our goals? And so long story short, um, when that idea hit me, I did what I always do. I go to work. Um, I don't ever believe in letting misery have the last word in my life. Um, you're, not, you're not ever going to let misery have the last word with me. And so it's about mm -hmm. bouncing back. And that's the story of black people. We bounce back, you know, from, from slavery to segregation to Jim Crow and Jane Crow. We keep advancing the causes that matter to us. And so I went to work and uh, ended up uh, purchasing this station, acquiring this station. It's called KBLA Talk 1580. And we, on Juneteenth, literally, uh, just not almost three months, just about three months ago on Juneteenth, we, we cracked the mic and we are having you know, great success three months in. We have a great lineup of hosts. Uh, all kinds of guests are coming on the program. The callers are calling in and our app is being downloaded all across the country. So literally, Across the country and around the world, all the fans I've had by the millions for years are listening to us through our app, which is KBLA 1580. I'm back on the air personally three hours a day, but more than me, there's a great compliment of hosts who are talking about issues on a national and international level that matter to black people. And again, if you download the app at KBLA 1580, you can listen to our program in real time anywhere in the world. Tavis, thank you so much for sharing your journey for that chapter of your life and uh, what the transition to the next chapter looks like and using the platform to be able to uh, discuss uh, issues that matter. Uh, before I get to the next question in here, I would like our participants um, to uh, please put in the chat questions you would like for us to ask Tavis because he's ready, eager, so please go ahead and submit them in so that we can get to that segment here after I ask this last question of Tavis. Um, we've always said that equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement is a journey where mistakes will be made, whether it's by the individual or a company or a community. Why? Because we're humans. This is a work of humans interacting. So this is where we learn and grow because we have to give each other grace. But we also know that in this era of cancel culture, People are quick to judge. They're not taking the time to, you know, seek to understand, and they're not making allowances for people to overcome adversity. You just talked about creating a new platform. 
cancel culture isn't something that just happens once and it's done. It can happen multiple times. How do you think, uh, how, what would you recommend uh, for leaders to navigate and balance uh, this whole cancel culture, which I'm not a big fan of? Because again, I have this growth mindset and you learn and grow from our mistakes because we're humans. What are your thoughts, Tavis? That's a great question. I think you're right. We all have to learn and grow from, our, from the mistakes that, we're made, that we make. And, and my problem with the cancel culture is simply this, particularly as it relates to younger people who, you know, I see people who get canceled when they're, you know, in their 20s or even or younger. The reality is where we t- if we're talking about young people, young people by definition are, are learning, they're growing, they're maturing. And so if we, if we have a zero tolerance policy for young people making mistakes, then God help us all, because that's what being young is all about. Uh, it's about making mistakes. Um, but but more, more broadly speaking, I think that the way you navigate through this is to, you know, n- be clear about your North Star, to know who you are. You can't let anybody else write a narrative that defines you. Now, again, you want to be circumspect about the decisions you make. And I think in this era of social media, um, younger persons in the workplace really have to be careful about the things they say on social media, about the things they post on social media about the pictures they upload on social media. Um, anything that you post, anything that is, you know, the thing about, about the internet, of course, is once it's there, it's always there. You cannot scrub the internet uh, once it's there. Somebody has a copy of it. So you gotta be circumspect about the decisions you make, about the places you go, about the activities you engage in. And you ain't gotta put all of your business on the internet because some of that is gonna come back to haunt you somewhere down the road as you're trying to build and grow through your career. So again, be circumspect about the decisions you make. Uh, try not to do things and make decisions that you'd be ashamed of. And it's pretty simple. If you're engaging in something that you would be ashamed of were it to hit the media, um, then it might be something you want to reconsider doing. Um, yeah. So again, you want to be you want to be circumspect about the decisions you make. But at the end of the day, we are human. We are not human and divine. Yeah. And no matter how careful no matter how careful you are, you're going to make a mistake at some point. Yeah. But again, as I said earlier, you can't let misery have the last word. You can't let others define you. Um, you can't let someone else write a narrative about you. But I just believe in doing, you know, doing the best you can with what you have, as I said earlier, right where you are. And in the end, yeah. so long as you are determined, you are dogged about your pursuit of what matters to you, I think you'll be all right. Going back to your purpose and your North Star, as we were talking about. Thank you so much, Tavis. Absolutely. And that's why it's funny. Uh, someone told me before when I think about social media, if, if, if grandma wouldn't like it, you probably shouldn't post it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, listen, we, I know you're a little late, but we still we still want to get some of our listener questions in. You know, uh, um, you know sure. we're on a live broadcast here and we want to make sure we get a few questions in. So we want to turn it over to Jess and, and see what we've got in the queue for a couple of uh, uh, listener questions, Jess. Yeah, first one we have in here. Um, if you only had one last show to speak about, what would your message be? And what is the most important message that you would have us know? <clears throat> that's a good question. Uh, yeah. and I'm gonna I'm gonna answer it. I'm gonna answer it this way. This is something that is, you know, that's um I I admit in advance it's um it's atypical and uh out of the ordinary. Um, but I believe that what's what's wrong with our public discourse in this country. I mean, it's, it's clear that it's, it's too, un, it's too uh, uncivil. What's wrong, though, is that there was a time in our public discourse where we would put love at the epicenter. We would put love in the middle of the public square. When you think about Mandela, Mandela put love in the public square. Dr. King put love in the public square. Robert Kennedy put love in the public square. 
When you think about the persons who we admire and revere and respect the most, Mother Teresa, run the list. There are people who engage their work, but they put love at the epicenter of it. And let me define what I mean by love, because that word gets to be, it gets tossed around, it's cheap, and it's, it's, um, it gets cheapened by the way that we, I think, misuse it and abuse it. When I, mean, when I say love, what I mean is simply this, that you live a life and you create a legacy where you want the same thing for everybody else's kids that you want for your kids. That's what I mean by putting love at the center of our public discourse, that you will work and engage a witness that is whose end and aim is that every other child in this country and around the world will have the same access, the same opportunities that you want for your child. And when you dedicate yourself to that kind of work and that kind of witness, I think it makes your life more meaningful. But at the end of the day, you know, I make a distinction all the time between, between, between your, your, your work or your job and your vocation. They're not the same thing. Your vocation is your calling. And sometimes that is the work that you do. But, but when you think about your, your work and your witness, what really is your vocation? What were you born to do? What are you being called to do? Um, and my sense is that if you can find a way to use your, you know, to use your vocation um, to aid and abet those who may not be as fortunate as you are, then your work ends up being a lot more rewarding. So again, if, 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 if okay. I hope I've answered your question, which is that you I are. think if you can find a way to, to, to center and to situate love for others, respect for others at the epicenter of whatever you do, uh, because everybody's somebody's child, everybody's somebody's kid. Uh, and when you come in contact with clients and with customers, with, 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 with colleagues, if you keep that in mind, uh, then I think your work ends up being more meaningful in the long run. Great. Thank you so much, Tavis, uh, for your response to that wonderful question that was posed. And I think uh, we're going to move on to the next segment of our show here, which is a diversity thumbball, uh, Tavis. I know you probably played ball with Derwin growing up here, <laughs> maybe in the backyard. Uh, we're going to do a little diversity thumbball here. Um, it's got prompts and questions around the soft ball. Otherwise, I would never have Anthony throw a ball that's hard at me. Uh, <laughs> He's going to throw it at me, and whatever uh, question or prompt that my thumbs land on, that's going to be your prompt and question to answer. If you were here, we would do it in person, but we always uh, are able to pivot for a virtual. So, all right, Anthony, there go ahead go. and do your best here. All right. Tavis, this is your question. What's our biggest challenge when it comes to achieving social equality? You're not, you're not going to like this answer. You're not going to like this answer. Hey, I'm going to give it to hey, you. We're, we're, we're straight up, Tavis. We're straight up. Keep yeah. It real. Yeah. So keeping it real, I believe that the greatest challenge we face is people being able to understand, appreciate, and embrace the humanity of the other. I've been Black my whole life. And I wrestled with this question many times. And, and the question is whether or not I think people who don't look like me have the capacity, do they even have the capacity to truly understand, appreciate, and embrace my humanity? What's wrong with our society is that rather than embrace the humanity of the other, and let me just say this, I don't believe that you can ever come into the fullness of your own humanity. I don't care what color you are, what gender you are, what your orientation is, any of that. 
I don't believe you can ever come into the fullness of your own humanity if you cannot respect and revel in the humanity of the other, whoever or whatever the other is. So if you want to experience the fullness of your own humanity, you have to be able to respect and revel in the humanity of the other. And the problem with our society is because of the way we look or our preferences or because of where we live or, uh, you know, because of any number of erroneous factors, things that really don't even matter. Too often the humanity of people gets contested. It doesn't get celebrated. We find ourselves having the humanity of people contested. Uh, and the contestation, the contestation of humanity by any other definition is what homophobia is. The contestation of humanity is what sexism is and patriarchy. The, contest, the contestation of humanity is what ageism is. I could do this all day long, but all of those yeah. isms, all those isms are rooted in a behavior that contests the humanity of the other. So the greatest challenge we face in trying to achieve real and meaningful and lasting social justice in this country or around the world is that we have a difficulty getting people to understand, again, that everybody's somebody's child, everybody's somebody's kid, and the ultimate goal is to respect and revel yeah. in their humanity, not to contest it. But that's, that's as I said, you might not like the answer, but that's a, that's a tall order, no. that's a tall order. Uh, we're inclusive leaders and we know that uh, we really need to get to know the other. So I did like that response because I wholeheartedly believe in it, Tavis. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate uh, both uh, your time and Nika's time and uh, do want to say thank you. Thank you to the Society for Diversity for allowing us to be able to do a live episode of Diversity Straight Up podcast. Uh, but we appreciated all of your time and thank you to the participants and thank you, Jez, for moderating. And uh, um, special a shout out to our sponsors here as we wrap up here, Anthony. Yes, yes. Special shout out to Green State Credit Union, along with Alliance Energy and City of Cedar Rapids and Collins Aerospace. We really thank you for your sponsorship. And if you love this episode of Diversity Straight Up, you know, then head over to the most popular your, your uh, podcast, your subscriber, uh, and rate us and review us. Please jump online and to catch our next episode of Diversity Straight Up, which drops uh, the last Thursday of each month. Uh, so, you know, we will be dropping this episode live on YouTube and all your podcasts. And so you'll get to see these wonderful guests again and uh, share this with your friends and colleagues and coworkers. Uh, what a great conversation we had around uh, the equity, diversity, inclusion and engagement today. So, so thank you for that. So remember, wherever you live, work and play, our backyards are increasingly global. And as we say on our show, diversity straight up. Keeping it real. Thank you for your time, everyone. And thank you for hanging on. Thank you. You've been listening to Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union. Additional support provided by Alliant Energy, Collins Aerospace, and the City of Cedar Rapids. For more from the Corridor Business Journal, please visit CorridorBusiness.com. This episode was produced by Joe Coffey of Coffee Grande Studios.